Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of cultural journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners, journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I'm editor-in-chief Rieko Kingopop, and in today's episode you can listen to a conversation on European belonging between the award-winning author, broadcaster and Guardian columnist Gary Young, philosopher Susan Niemann, head of the Einstein Forum, and historian Jan Klampa from the Goldsmith University of London, with Emilia Salvanu moderating. This discussion took place at the 30th European Meeting of Cultural Journals on the 2nd of November in 2019 in Berlin. The conference was titled Redeem the Promise, Europe 1989. You can also read the essay based on Gary Young's address in Eurozine by the title The Price of Dishonesty. The UK is already paying the price for dishonest campaigning during the referendum on EU membership. And yet, misconceptions that dominated the Brexit Leave campaign are not only a UK phenomenon. All European states struggle with immigration, multiculturalism, pluralism and inclusion, and the left falls short of counterbalancing the right's manufactured notions of monoethnicity. Why then don't we fight harder in the name of solidarity? Since 1989, concepts such as internationalism and solidarity feel contaminated, says Susan Neiman. Globalism has prevailed, but its universality is ultimately only the universality of needs. The challenge, therefore is to create emotionally charged imaginaries which can fit together in a convincing European narrative, argues Jan Plampa. We are very happy and thankful to have you all here. And Gary, you may open the discussion. Thank you uh, for uh, inviting me. It's, it won't be long before, as a Briton, um, we won't be invited to many things um, in uh, in Europe. I'm, I'm, I recall in 2007 that somebody, uh, when the Belgian government hadn't met for almost a year, somebody put the country on eBay and got 11 million euros before they took it off. I wonder how much Britain would get if they put it on eBay. Um, I want to concentrate on three main things as they apply to this conversation, which hopefully um, can serve as a basis for what we're going to talk about. And they relate most specifically to the situation in Britain and Brexit, but it's broader than that. Because um, if there's a broad theme here in Britain, it's dishonesty, a false narrative about who we are and who we were and who we might be and that the debts are finally coming due for that. Now, the first thing I want to concentrate on is immigration. Britain has always been a home to immigrants, but immediately after the Second World War, there was a significant surge. Some came from former colonies, particularly the Caribbean, Australia, South Africa, Africa, and Asia. Though more initially came from elsewhere in Europe, Ireland, Italy, Cyprus, Poland, the Baltic states. Throughout that time, the British political establishment refused to engage intelligently with the issue. For decades, the issue of race, the colour of people, was generally interchangeable with place, the movement of people. Even when more than half of all black people in Britain were born there, they were still understood as immigrants. 
the right would brazenly stoke prejudice because they knew that's how they would get votes, and the left would indulge them because they knew that's how they would lose, otherwise they would lose votes. And the upshot was that precious few in the country understood what immigration was for, what drives it, who benefits from it, and why. We did not talk about wars, trade deals, arms sales, environmental devastation, in which we were complicit that made more people move. But nor did we discuss the needs of an aging population, a low-wage economy with a creaking welfare state that made us need more people. To provide just one example, the National Health Service make Britons more proud, the National Health Service makes Britain more proud to be British than the monarchy does. It would not be possible without immigrants. By 1971, 12% of British nurses were Irish nationals. And by the turn of the century, 73% uh, of family doctors in the Rhondda Valley in Wales were from South Asia. We were and are ignorant. Three quarters of Britons think immigration should be reduced. But then they also think migrants comprise 31% of the country when the actual number is 13%. So no wonder they're scared. If I thought a puppy was more than twice the size of an actual puppy, I might be scared of puppies. When the, British, when the Brexit referendum arrived, we paid the price for all of the hard debates that had been avoided and all the easy roads that had been taken. Second, there is multiculturalism. And in this, there is both fact and fiction. The multiculturalism of fact must start from the basis that it has nothing to do with race or religion. Europe is not and never has been a monoculture or a monoethnicity. If you took all the black and brown people out of Europe and all the non-Christians, it would still be multicultural. Look at what is happening in Catalonia right now. Take a look at what might happen in Scotland if, Brit if Britain left the European Union. Take a look at Belgium and Wallonia and Flanders. For more successful examples, look at the multilingual Swiss, the regional variations in Italy, the revival of the Welsh language and the issues with the border in Ireland. Europe, uh, when it comes to race and religion, Europe has great examples of success and important examples of failure but none of them are particular to the issues of race and religion. The multiculturalism of fiction, however, is the notion that a there is a liberal state-led policy of encouraging and supporting cultural difference at the expense of national cohesion. In most of Europe, no such coordinated policies ever existed. In many places where what is called multiculturalism is being read its last rites, it never actually lived in its professed form. But references to it are everywhere, stirring moral panic over so-called liberal dilemmas, which then counterpose diversity and solidarity, as though they stand in contradiction and conflict. Just for one example, take the decision in September 2005 of the Danish newspaper Posten to publish over 12 cartoons, some of which depicted the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, uh, which depicted the Prophet Muhammad, some of which were deeply offensive. Now, of course, Yerland Poston absolutely had the right to publish those um, uh, cartoons. Uh, but then we get to the question of were they right to publish those cartoons? And you hear from uh, uh, Fleming Rose at the time, who says, 
This is a far bigger story than just the question of 12 cartoons. He's the culture editor. It's about the question of integration and how compatible the religion of Islam is with a modern secular society. And he was right in one sense. It was a far bigger story. It's just not the one that he was selling. Because just two years earlier, a Danish illustrator, Christopher Zeller, submitted a series of unsolicited cartoons offering a light-hearted take on the resurrection of Christ. And he received an email from the paper saying, I don't think Yolande Poston's readers will enjoy the drawings. As a matter of fact, they will provoke an outcry, and therefore we will not use them. The question whether, wasn't whether you could or should draw a line when it comes to religious tolerance and freedom of expression, but where you draw it, and who counts and who doesn't. The bigger story here was about the notion of integration as it is understood in the current Western model. Namely, who are you trying to integrate? What are you trying to integrate them into? And on what basis? Since the turn of the century, this century, the establishment in Britain stoked fears about whether British culture could withstand the integration of Muslims, when they might have been more worried about how to integrate the white working class into the British economy. Muslims voted 70% to stay in the European Union. The white working class did not. And finally, there is empire. And I am minded here of the Danish finance minister, Christian Jensen, who said, there are two kinds of European nations. There are small nations, and there are countries that have not yet realized that they are small nations. Britain is the latter. And this painful Brexit process is teaching us how small we are. Since Suez, Britain has struggled with its place in the modern world. Nostalgic about its former glory, anxious about its diminished state, forgetful about its former crimes, bumptious about its future role. It has lived on its reputation as an elderly aristocrat might live on his trust fund, frugally and pompously, with a great sense of entitlement and precious little self-awareness. Brexit was in part an expression of this. They wanted to put the great back into Great Britain. But that is not a plan, it is a slogan, and a delusional one at that. When it came to negotiations, they assumed that Britain would dictate the terms. It couldn't. They assumed they could just walk away. They couldn't. They had more, no more plans for leaving the European Union than a dog chasing a car has to drive it. And they are now finding out how little sovereignty means for a country the size of Britain in a neoliberal globalized economy beyond blue passports which are made in France anyway. <laughs> All European states struggle, I believe, with the first two challenges of the notions of immigration and multiculturalism as it relates to candor, anti-racism, pluralism, and inclusion. The latter, empire, is the burden of a few former colonial powers, primarily France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Portugal, each of whom struggles with their dishonesty in their own way. But finally, all of this has taken place most recently in a period where nation states have struggled to assert their will as a primary democratic entity against the might and scale of neoliberal globalization, a system that ensures that whomever you vote for, capital always gets in. And most recently, during a massive economic crash in which the poorest paid most for the follies and the greed of the wealthy. These two are general problems not particular to Britain. However bizarre Britain appears, and I'm aware that it does appear bizarre, it would be hubristic 
of those outside of Britain to think that the four horsemen of modern day European political culture, nationalism, racism, alienation, and nostalgia do not stalk the rest of the continent. The crisis, said the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and a new cannot be born. And in this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. Brexit is a symptom of a broader crisis affecting us. And in that sense, we are more European than we would like to admit. Thank you. I am going to respond to some of the points that Gary just made. I think we're largely in agreement, but my differences will be questions of tone. We're actually supposed to talk about culture in this panel and not about um, material basis. That's for the uh, late afternoon lecture. But as we discussed at lunch, um, they're deeply related, um, even if you're not a Marxist and certainly if you're not uh, a reductionist, as I am not. I want to think a little bit about the ways in which dishonesty is furthered by interests. Interests that Gary, of course, mentioned uh, more or less obliquely at several points. You know, we all have a tendency not to look at our flaws. That's deeply human, whether it's personal or national. But I think what we're talking about right now uh, is the ways in which dis or what I'd like to talk about is the ways in which dishonesty has been so strongly furthered by a neoliberal global culture since 1989. And it doesn't, it didn't have to work out that way. We had the example in the Polish case of the hostility towards refugees going up dramatically. That was a subject of the last panel discussion. Um, it wasn't mentioned when we talked about the breakup of the former Yugoslavia that <clears throat> Milosevic played on what are indeed, as Professor Schlogel mentioned, you know, age-old um, nationalist divisions, but sometimes they're exploited and sometimes they're not. Think about the fact that if you had asked five years ago whether immigration was a major issue in the United States, you would have had very few takers to that proposition. And Donald Trump has built an entire presidency on uh, a, a set of lies about immigrants. Um, again, the United States, unlike European countries, was a nation built on a myth about immigration. And when the Trump administration starts wanting to rewrite Emma Lazarus's poem, which is at the base of the Statue of Liberty, you know that something has been reversed. It's um, so. Um, let's see, I made a bunch of notes here. The question is why we don't fight more for words like solidarity, why multiculturalism, as Gary said, is a kind of placeholder, but um, nothing that anybody's prepared to actually stand up and give some content to. 
And I think certainly one of the reasons is that we don't have a notion of internationalism anymore, nor do we have a notion of solidarity. Both of those words feel in the West and perhaps even more in the East contaminated since 1989. what we have is globalism, which is, of course, a completely different phenomena. It's a claim about the universality of needs. It's not a claim about the universal, as in everybody needs an iPhone um, <laughs> or needs Amazon to bring whatever to their door. It's not a claim about any other f- uh, form of universality, a universality of rights, a universality of interests. It's all interests have been reduced to one. I have the same problem with the word tolerance, which is often mentioned uh, in connection with multiculturalism. Tolerance is, uh, it's actually a horrible word, because if you think about when we use it in ordinary language, we tolerate those things which we don't like, headaches, noise, uh, smell in the uh, subway, and moreover, things which we are powerless to do anything about. So that I think the minute that people ask uh, their neighbors to be more tolerant, they're not only um, um, reminding them of uh, a set of negative values, but they're reminding them of their own powerlessness. And, um, you know, so my plea, which is uh, I realize, uh, particularly in this moment of commemoration of 1989, a rather freighted one, is that one of the things we need to do is is, uh, redefine words like solidarity and internationalism. I'm going to say a word about colonialism, which I agree with you entirely, is something that um, Britain completely failed to look at. I was in Britain about six weeks ago uh, at the publication of my book, Learning from the Germans, and twice in two different television programs, I was told, oh, but that can't possibly uh, have any... um, And learning from the Germans refers to the ways in which I think Germany has to some degree faced its past unevenly with difficulties, slowly, reluctantly. Um, It's actually the failures of the German Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung which have proven an interesting example to other countries who are beginning or small small populations in other countries are beginning to do that. But I was told in Britain, oh, but that has nothing to do with us. The Nazis were uh, interested in world domination, (laughs) to to which it fortunately occurred to me to say the first time I was told this, I thought the sun never set on the British Empire. Um, So, uh, you know, in, in all of those ways, I agree with you entirely that um, there is an enormous amount of dishonesty going on. 
And sadly enough, it's people on the left who know about that dishonesty, who are often the strongest critics of Europe, and the people who are um, least willing to actually um, present an idealistic vision of Europe because they know the flaws. And I think that's the point at which we decided I should hand the microphone over to Jan, who wants to talk about that question. I'll try. Um, thank you. Um, so, so yesterday uh, we had the we had Elida Osman. Uh, Osman, we had the arresting image of uh, the empty sacred center in the center of the stars, uh, the European um, flag. Um, and um, I think part of the business of this panel will be to uh, try and offer some thoughts about um, how this might be done. So, so the panel following us is. Uh, the panel on hard economics, as it were, it's on on uh, it's the economy, stupid, or it's the economy, Europe, and ours is is might be entitled it's the emotions, uh, Europe, or it's the emotions, stupid, and the two are connected uh, in fundamental ways. They're not in opposition to each other, as we all learned in 2008 with um, the world financial crisis, when uh, a rational choice, et cetera, uh, proved that they were not uh, rational at all. Um, Okay, so we've got that. We've got very little by way of imaginaries about uh, filling that symbolic center, symbolic emotional center uh, of of Europe. Um, uh, but interestingly, we also there's also very little uh, for the country that we're in at the moment. Um, Germany. Uh, has a, a, a concept of um, a nationhood that is still um, very much ethnobiological, uh, ethno-national, much more so than other European uh, concepts of nationhood. Uh, it is one that is uh, not uh, fully a concept of civic uh, nationhood. Um, and that's for a whole host of reasons. Um, but one of them, I think, is that um, uh, the left or progressives uh, have shied away from trying and participate in the process of um, offering something, of trying to uh, define it. Um, and that's understandable. It's, it's, um, uh, it's a function of uh, Nazism. Um, it's understandable that that's uh, contaminated, but it's come to haunt us, uh, I believe. It's falling on our feet. Um, and other people are making very attractive, um, uh, are offering very attractive uh, models. I'll just mention a couple. Uh, one is from the far right um, with the AFD in this country. Uh, another is um, from um, countries of origin of German citizens uh, who uh, I'm thinking, I have in mind in particular Turkey, Erdogan's uh, Turkey and uh, Putin's Russia. Um, who, in reversing older concepts of um, their nationhood, have turned to ethnobiological, ethnocultural, ethno-religious uh, concepts of models of, of um, nationhood. Um, and in the absence of anything um, by way um, of uh, Germany, um, these German citizens turn to uh, these alternative 
concepts, which in a changed media situation with uh, social media, satellite television, etc., cetera, um, have, a, have the power to spread much more quickly and much more powerfully um, than they used to. So, so um, you know, I've, I never thought uh, I'd ever invest any intellectual energy in my life uh, in trying to define the nation, but um, I feel that, that the time has come where we ought to do this. Um, and I see that project as in parallel with trying to imagine um, symbolically, emotionally, um, Europe. Um, and so, so uh, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that um, I think humanity hasn't come up uh, with anything better than the salad bowl model where you can uh, belong, um, you can have various types of ties um, in your identity, but you can, you also have uh, one that belongs to the civic nation that you uh, belong to. Most people at least do, some to two or three, but anyway, um, it's a fact of life for most people. And, and so we need a, uh, a concept of, of plural um, uh, uh, forms of belonging or identities um, of deeply performative forms of belonging. As you do it, as you say things, as you perform something, they change, they get reformatted, uh, et cetera. And they, they need to be able to go together. The problem now is, at, in this country, that um, you uh, cannot be um, uh, of Turkish descent uh, and German. Uh, it's it's either or. That's still that's still the fact. Um, and it's there are numerous manifestations I could go into them. It, just use one. Uh, the 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 name used to designate uh, people say of Turkish origin is um, is uh, uh, German Turks, Deutsch Türken, rather than um, Turkish Germans, uh, Turko Germans, or um, anything. So it's it's an adjective, even though they're. Uh, civic belonging, civic national belonging is um, is to Germany. Um, so I think we 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 need something. Um, and uh, what is that supposed to do? I think uh, I think we ought to trust in democratic processes and in the power that they develop uh, as we do them. So I would never offer any kind of content-wise definition of what's going to go in there, but I have in mind stuff, I could speculate, I have in mind stuff, for instance, like a naturalization ceremony or a uh, museum for um, a Germany as a country of immigrants. Because this is the interesting thing. If you turn to history, you see that post-45 uh, Germany uh, is a country that's a country of immigrants. You've got 12 and a half million expellees from the East who are considered completely other as they arrive. The racisms, Nazism are applied to them. Um, these people of Silesians, et cetera. You've got uh, 14 million so-called guest workers, labor migrants from all over the place. Uh, um, uh, only um, 3 million stay, 11 million go back. You've got um, people uh, of ethnic German descent um, up to 3 million from the former Soviet Union, from Poland, from uh, Romania. You've got asylum seekers um, and many, many more. Um, so the, 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 the obvious fact is uh, that it's always been part of the story. And one of the, now, how can we think of imaginaries um, that are new and different. Um, so one of the elements of that would have to be, I think, uh, definitely telling a story of migration. And this is something that's, that can be generalized and universalized uh, on a pan-European 
level. That, that uh, you scratch in any kind of biography, any kind of family biography, individual biography, if you go long, if you go back uh, long enough, you'll find um, migration. Uh, forced migration, voluntary migration, usually uh, reasons are very difficult to, um, to uh, differentiate, but it, it, it's part of that. Um, so I think that should be definitely um, um, be, be part of it. Um, there, so, so 1989 to me um, also means something else. It means um, the end of uh, creating such imaginaries, investing in such imaginaries. It's the end of uh, utopianism, right? And, and it's interesting, to, this morning we heard um, Karl Schlögel um, and, and uh, we heard a very uh, powerful um, uh, plea to not think in terms of systems, in terms of larger um, uh, expansionary models, and certainly not in terms of uh, the vision thing, what um, uh, uh, one American president called the vision thing. Um, and, but that's part of the biography as well. You know, uh, I think part of the biography has to be um, when you tell, when you, if you were to tell your uh, autobiography, I think um, your communist, Maoist, uh, West German past would be part of this. And 1989 as an end to, or breaking with, it started earlier with you, but um, an end to this kind of utopian thinking. And and this is, I think, where we need to go again. Of course. Knowing about the the dangers, uh, but still we need to invest in in um, utopian thinking. So I'll just pick on a couple of elements um, that might feed into this. So did you know, for instance, that um, in 2011, uh, both Ukraine and Russia uh, joined something called a Euregio, or Euregio, uh, and they joined the Association of European Border regions, uh, and they got money from the EU in order to clean up um, the Don River. It was the, it's the Donbass uh, Euregio. So that's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a model. Why do we talk about um, Brexit and the Nor Northern Irish issue only in terms of what might happen? It's an incredible success story. The fact that this conflict, which seemed as intractable as the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, that this conflict has been diffused for so long. This is an unbelievable success story. And you see it as an export model um, that, that, that's, that, that can certainly be exported to, to um, uh, other parts of Europe. Uh, Donbass, Eurasia was one example. That didn't work, but still, it can work. That would be one, um, um, one um, uh, point to be, uh, to be made. Um, so I guess the, 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 uh, the uh, issue would be, um, to think hard about how to create um, national, symbolically, emotionally charged imaginaries, uh, and how these then, in the end, might fit together in a in a European uh, one. Because uh, the way they are, they're still very different. You've got many that are based predicated on victimhood, others on heroism. Uh, you got the German exceptionalism, uh, as as Susan detailed in her in her uh, last book. Um, but how are we going to bring this together? But still, I think it, it, it's worth investing energy in, in, in doing this.
I just want to respond to that very quickly because I'm entirely on the same side as you are, Jan. If you're looking for a deep disagreement, I think it's not going to be on this panel. Um, but I think you're undermining the project from the start by using words like utopian and imaginary. Utopia, as you know, as well as anybody, I'm sure, means nowhere. And imaginary it has the same thing. I think what's been lost since, or what seemed contaminated since 1989 is the word ideal, because ideal is not, uh, and I, I mean, ideals get realized, and we've seen them uh, be realized. And uh, if state socialism uh, committed any sin, I mean, it committed a number of sins, but as far as I'm concerned, the worst sin it committed was to create general international cynicism about the power of ideals. So I think if you're, you know, if you're working to create that, maybe it's my training as a philosopher, but I think we need to be you know, just as careful about not using words like imaginary as not using tolerance. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to give you as an example of something that actually works in uh, in this country, at least in uh, the district Neukölln, um, I have lived here for a terribly long time and did not actually decide to apply for German citizenship until Donald Trump was elected uh, president of the United States. And I was fortunate enough to um, get my citizenship in Neukölln, where I live, when Franziska Giffey, who fortunately did not officially plagiarize her dissertation, and so will remain with us as uh, a social democratic minister, and presumably quite a bit more for a long time, she was simply regional mayor. And she constructed a ceremony, I know this is hers because I've talked to other friends who were naturalized and it was quite different, where the beginning was there were 48 uh, new Germans from 22 countries. And there was a violin and a piano playing snippets of the national anthems of all of those countries, which made for rather a long ceremony. Then, but, but it was quite moving. And she talked about the importance of music and saying, you know, you're not losing your old identity, you're getting a, a new one. And then we were all supposed to get up and sing. Um, I, I know it's not Deutschland über alles, but um, that, the problem is, is, is that for... For for non-Germans, that's what it comes it comes out as, and uh, and the the Europe hymn and the Beethoven. So um, you know there are attempts like this, and I think coming. I I don't think it's that hard to do the kind of you know multicultural citizenship that you're talking about. Um, or multiple identities. I mean, we all have multiple identities. Uh, I just think we have to be really careful about what words we use and what words we avoid. I just... Um, is this working? Yeah. Just coming off the back of that, I think that there is... There's a problem that liberals on the left have, which is that the right, uh, when it comes to imagination and um, uh, to a grand narrative... The right has no problem right. manufacturing uh, kind of uh, uh, an entirely um, 
dishonest, false notion of monoethnicity, of kind of uh, of a kind of a nationhood that's frozen at a certain point in time. In Britain, that's just after the war. In other countries, it will be a different time that they then imagine themselves back to. So with Brexit, there's been a lot of war imagery. It's like the Blitz, you know, people say, and it's like, look, but we're declaring war on ourselves. This is not a kind of, this is not, and actually, it was an awful time. It was a terrible thing to recreate. Whereas the left, I feel, um, they have a different story to tell. It's a different story of cosmopolitanism and diversity and of internationalism, and, but they don't like to tell it. They're kind of embarrassed by it, and they, they don't sufficiently believe in it in order to kind of take it out there and, and actually galvanize people on the basis that, you know, we, we are more than just ourselves. And this was one of the features of the Brexit campaign, which was that one side was attacking the EU and the other side did not defend the EU or defend cosmopolitanism or defend the kind of, you know, what is beautiful about the fact that people can travel. They just kind of, uh, they just shut up about it. Which is a different way of saying is there is a response, there is an answer to the, um, uh, to the rights notion of a fictitious na nationhood, but we have to believe in that answer ourselves before we can take them on. Quick question, how much do you think that the left-wing embarrassment has to do with 1989 and the contaminations of words like international solidarity? Because I think a lot. I don't think that the left uh, has faced that problem yet. And, um, you know, the, uh, this is anecdotal, but it's not unimportant. Uh, we at the Einstein Forum were interested last year in getting someone who was an expert on North Korea to talk about the memory of the Korean War and how that was affecting politics, uh, contemporary politics in North India. So we found someone. And the first thing that he did when he got to uh, our um, auditorium or our room uh, in Brandenburg was to talk about how moved he was to be in the former East Germany because after the Korean War, when uh, more bombs were dropped than in the entire Second World War, he said it was East German engineers who came in the name of international solidarity to build up North Korea. So, I mean, there are memories of words like international solidarity not simply being, uh, you know, uh, instrumentalized for, uh, um, you know, repressive purposes. And I just wonder if you think that's the source of our embarrassment. Because I do, but I mean, you have I, a different view. I don't, very, very quickly. I, d I don't just because I... Th I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but I also think that there is... Uh, it comes from a deeply parochial place that doesn't want to kind of reach out to the rest of the world because one can use, for example, I don't know, Mandela or the Dalai Lama or... The, it's not like there aren't objects of aspiration out there that we can use... Um, to kind of claim an international, a notion of international solidarity. Interestingly, even Obama 
you know, and America not known as the kind of place you go, you know, hey, we go. But when Obama was elected, there was a there was a notion of the world kind of rallying. You know, people just wished he was their president instead, or as well. well I, the Irish actually claimed him, by the way. They have a national monument in the place of his um, uh, great great grandfather on his mother's side birth. The Irish claim everybody. <laughs> Well, uh, people are trying to do that with not just international solidarity, but also with anti-fascism. Um, there's an attempt to reconquer the term and use it as a um, as a uniting um, principle and its history. Um, see, I think part of the realization of uh, the past couple of years is that um, we've done all this uh, analysis of uh, you know metaphors of uh, dehumanizing human beings and so on and uh, the realization is that that there's a reservoir of this that's extremely easy to activate um, uh, to tap into uh, there's uh, uh, the, the 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 amount of muck uh, is so immense so enormous and it's so easy to activate so I think in order to uh, develop counter strategies, um, uh, we need to be so much more um, expansive and, 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 um, and uh, creative um, than we think. I, I think I use the term to think from an Archimedean point that's outside the here and now. I, I use the term utopia as well, but uh, I don't think um, that's a problem. I think uh, none of the progressive changes would have ever happened without uh, I think women would still not be voting had not somebody thought uh, from an Archimedean point outside the, um, the here and now. And um, on the issue of migration, personally, uh, and, and from um, um, looking at migration studies, I can see how uh, you cannot be um, pro-open borders. Um, the, ultimately, I think it's, it's going to be very difficult to... Uh, not have a definition of the sovereign as uh, global humanity. You know, if, if, if the way we live here has effects in, in, in Bangladesh and the Ganges Delta, um, but um, flooding them and eventually making their basis of living impossible. And if they vote with their feet and come here, well, that's uh, the expression. They're more than us. There's about 160, 80, uh, 60 million Bangladeshis. There's about 80 million Germans. That's a different uh, notion of, of uh, sovereignty. And ultimately, I can't see how you cannot deny, um, how you cannot define uh, mobility as a truly um, universal um, uh, human right. Now, how we get there in the intermediate stages, a lot will have to happen, right? They'll, they'll have to, um, well, one, one of the things would be to, to um, I mean, there's some good practical things that are out there. So you can you can actually um, use, for instance, amnesties. You can naturalize, mass naturalize people uh, who are without papers in Europe, who've made it to Europe but have been living here and working here. That's one of the things uh, you can do. You can do. You can regulate migration in different ways than it's being done uh, now. Um, of course, you need to have consensus for that. But I think still thinking from an Archimedean point. Um, that's uh, far removed is, is the only way to go. I, I was intrigued by how quickly, before 1989, 
one of the more obvious sins as it was as it was sold in the West was that these people can't move, that these people can't leave. How terrible is that that they can't get out? And then as soon as the wall came down, there was this sense of like, well, don't come here, you know. And um, uh, and the notion of uh, free movement was absolutely kind of uh, embraced so long as it wasn't possible. And as soon as it became possible, then uh, 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 a kind of, where well, the politics kept them out, the economics, then the economics kept them out. But that um, it, it shows that there is a world where you can make that case. Uh, uh, in that case, it was a case against communism, but there's a, there's a case that you can make more broadly. I was intrigued by, by the use of the word embarrassment for, uh, for giving alternative narratives. And, okay, I thought about melancholia, traverse term of melancholia of the left, and uh, collective guilt. And it reminded me, I was doing research of uh, the 1960s in Greece, a strict anti-communism state, repressive. And it said that being a communist is incompa incompatibly racially with being Greek. You can't be, I mean, it's, you can't imagine yourself as Greek and a communist is a different race. And for our discussion here, I was thinking, can we imagine, I mean, after 89, and after the uh, neoliberalism being a new truth regime around Europe, can we imagine a different Europe based on socialist uh, ide uh, ideals, or are we too embarrassed to voice it? It's funny. Um, I didn't realize that was the case in Greece, but it sounds almost American. I mean, in American uh, in culture, until extremely recently, when Bernie Sanders rehabilitated the notion of socialism, even though it's not quite what we would consider socialism. In fact, I have to tell Americans that uh, Sanders is quite to the left of, uh, to the right of Merkel in terms of what he actually proposes. Um, but it, the idea that you couldn't be a communist, in fact, the anti-communist committee was called the House on american Activities Committee, although there was a communist movement and a communist tradition in the United States. Uh, I think what Europe needs to realize with all the um, you know, due understanding of the differences between East and West and North and South economically, is actually we're a proto-socialist continent compared to the rest of the world. And if you're talking about ideals that we might fill the center with, Jan, uh, I think the idea that things like education, health care, uh, parental leave, paid vacation are not as they're considered in the US, but also in India or China or Brazil. They are not benefits, they're rights. And you know, I, I think Europeans often tend to lose the big picture on that. Of course, you know, social structures have been cut. Of course, there are differences between countries. But nevertheless, there's a conceptual commitment to the idea of those things as rights 
that I think Europeans need to stand up for at the same time that they're expanding the rights and making sure that they're equal between the different countries. Because simply being pro-European but saying, well, it means we haven't had a war in 75 years, if you forget about the former Yugoslavia, um, that's simply not enough of a positive vision. And I do think that a rethought socialism is. And that came, came through with what Gary said and the pride that Brits take in the, Britain's take in the NHS. So it's the social welfare state. Um, but, but there is an economic underbelly, right? Uh, the social welfare state has lived through enormous cuts uh, when uh, uh, neoliberalism post-1989 went on steroids. Um, so it's part of reconquering that whole uh, generation. It's not going to work without uh, the R word. The, the biggest taboo is redistribution. That's, uh, that's going to have to be part of it as well. But we saw the, the imbrication of uh, sort of emotional symbolic attachment that came through the poll that you cited um, and, and a very concrete, real, uh, very concrete real kinds of safeguards that we enjoy as uh, citizens uh, of this continent. It's going to have to, there's going to have to be an open conversation about migration and the social welfare state, um, one that doesn't shy away from the difficult and hard uh, issues because if 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 uh, more people try and get in, um, uh, the cake is going to get smaller. But um, it's a conversation I'd rather have uh, than not have. But the social welfare state may well be one of the um, key candidates for that uh, emotional symbolic center in the European Union. You've been listening to Gogolin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. You can read Gary Young's address in Eurozine by the title The Price of Dishonesty. In our brand new anthology, The Legacy of Division is now published by CEU Press and can be ordered online. There's a link in the description to that. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review so more people can find us. We rely on your support. Every donation helps keep Eurozine free and independent. So if you appreciate our work, and we know you do, please support us for as little as five euros a month or whatever you can afford. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. I'm Editor-in-Chief Reiko Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.